I'd like to talk a little bit this morning about the Genesis 32 first reading, which, uh, as you may not know, is one of the oldest pieces of literature in the world. And also, apropos of today's news, is the formative part of a rather astounding meeting between a patriarch of Israel and a patriarch of the Arabs. I'd like to get into that by first carrying us all back to 1990 when my wife Sally and I were in Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and the occupied Gaza Strip and West Bank. I had the honor in that year to be the vice chair of the Episcopal Church's Standing Commission on Peace. And we were invited in there by the Anglican Archbishop of Jerusalem and the Middle East. We were there for three weeks on an itinerary that was half prepared for us by the American Jewish Committee and half prepared for us by the Middle East Council of Churches, representing, though nobody said it, the interests of the Palestine Liberation Organization. What I am about to say is not intended as a special pleading for Israel or for the Palestinians. I rather would like to spotlight the apparent deadlock there, which results in the sufferings of so many on both sides, and use that as a foil to setting up a brief exploration of the biblical story of Jacob and Esau, his twin brother. The uh, high points of our time over there were for me that after we had a major meeting with Israeli military and political leaders, we went to the Holocaust Memorial known as Yad Vashem. And the unforgettable museum and memorial attached to it called the Children's Memorial. I claim that it would be almost impossible for anyone with at least a partial open mind to go into those buildings and experience in them the destruction of six million Jews in the Shoah, what happened to them during the years 1933 to 45, and in the Children's Memorial to see the photos and hear the names of one million Jewish children 
who were killed in that same time and then walk out indifferent to the urgent need of there being a secure place on this planet for Jewish people. That, by the way, in my mind, is not a rationale for any particular policy of the nation of Israel or a way of overlooking any of the means by which they are trying to accomplish that. I'm only saying that a key influence on the attempt to build a secure homeland seems to me to be thoroughly understandable in general. A second thing that will never be forgotten by me is that at one moment we had taken a United Nations bus into the occupied Gaza Strip. We had gone to uh, the Jabalia refugee camp that at the time was the epicenter, you might say, of the first intifada. Maybe you know also that intifada is an Arabic word meaning uprising. That hospital is at the center of so much that has gone on since and goes on today, trying to treat as many wounded civilians as they can, perhaps some combatants as well, for all I know. But the hospital is owned by the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem and the Middle East, and the bishop wanted us to see it. There were all kinds of kids outside the hospital, and the noise of their playing was was very loud, I thought. We were invited into the emergency department and told about the assaults by Israeli military upon the hospital and how, for instance, the military was in the habit of lobbing tear gas into the emergency department. I was handed a tear gas canister and noticed, by the way, that printed on the side of it was made in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. No surprise. But suddenly, all the noise that was so patent outside came to a sudden stop. There was profound silence. And our guide said, we must go out and see what is happening. And as we walked out, and I looked to my left down this dirt street with open sewers on each side, I saw an Israeli military compound surrounded by several layers of barbed wire. And inside that was a tall platform on which were Israeli soldiers with automatic weapons 
pointed in our direction. There was a little more total silence. All the kids had disappeared. And then we could hear the engine of a jeep racing down that dirt road coming our way. And when it came into sight, we could tell it was driven by an Israeli soldier who was racing to that compound and the safety of it. All of a sudden, all those kids reappeared and seemingly threw every stone in the world at the driver of that Jeep. He was not hit by any of them because the army had uh, built a cage around the driver's cockpit. And uh, so he made it safely into the compound. Our guide said, we must board the buses right now and get out of here because in less than five minutes, this place will be tear gassed. And we left. The third and final image I lift up from that to me, unforgettable time, was when we had met with Israeli leaders at one moment. We then walked through part of Arab East Jerusalem and came upon two little kids. They were little kids engaged in a vicious fist fight. And an older kid ran up and separated them, saying something to them in Arabic, which our guide transferred, translated to us as, save it for the Jews. And thus, the enmity, the vengeance, the violence, the hatred, all gets passed on to the next generation. I'd just like to to put that information up here as a foil to what I'd like to say in concluding my remarks about that ancient and haunting account in Genesis 32 of the patriarch of the Jews meeting his brother whom he had deceived and stolen from. This is a story that the Jewish people and the Christian people as the so-called new Israel tell on ourselves. To set the stage for that, In the immediate preceding chapter of today's first reading, Jacob has worked for many years for his father-in-law and finally decides to steal from his father-in-law the most important possessions he owns. And then with his wife and family, and his entourage, he flees his father-in-law. 
So he's running away from the father-in-law, who may be, for all Jacob knows, in hot pursuit. But he's also racing toward his older twin brother, the firstborn, the one from whom he had stolen the precious birthright. It was a primogenitor situation where the oldest son owned everything. But Jacob had deceived their father in order to himself capture that birthright. And so the oncoming slightly older brother counted as a a very ominous force. And the question is, what will happen when Jacob caught between these two whom he has wronged meets up with his brother? And so as Jacob sends his family and the entourage across the Jabbok River in today's reading, he's left alone there. And it's actually a very deep gorge. And as night falls, he's surrounded by total darkness. And it says in that text that a man approaches him out of the darkness and a gigantic wrestling match starts and it lasts all night. Probably the earliest version of this ancient story when it was told around campfires centuries ago said that Jacob had been attacked by a river demon. But by the time the story got written down, it was simply a man. And then there's a third layer on top of that, where during the wrestling match, Jacob discovers that his attacker is God. And that's why as the dawn breaks, Jacob demands a blessing from the other. The other does give him a blessing, which is meant to be, in those years, the right to survive. And then Jacob wants to know the name of the other. And the other says, well, what's your name? And this is a most interesting moment because in Israel, a name frequently displays a person's character. So when Jacob tells his name, I'm Jacob, it's the same thing as admitting to God, my name is Cheat. And God changes the name, most interestingly, to Israel. This is the story Israel tells on itself and then touches the thigh of Jacob Israel 
so that Jacob goes on to meet his older brother, whom he has wronged, limping. The very end of it is the astonishing meeting between Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a patriarch of Israel. Esau is a patriarch of the Edomites, all who live just to the east of Israel, in Jordan, all the way down to Petra in the desert, and down further than that to Aqaba. He is, in other words, a patriarch of the Arabs. What will happen when the patriarch of Israel meets the patriarch of the Arabs whom he has deceived, from whom he has stolen so much, according to the Israeli version. And what happens is that Jacob approaches, Jacob Israel approaches very warily, very conscious of the unjust past, and uh, rather frightened. But Esau welcomes him with open arms and says, let's be who we are, brothers. Against that locked-in situation of strife and vengeance and pain and suffering on both sides. Out of a different world, the world of the Bible, comes the story of a miraculous reconciliation. When both sides come to their senses and recognize they are brothers, as close as twins. <laughs>